Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have two of the hosts of the amazing podcast, Water Talk, on the show. This podcast is one of my favorites on the internet in that it explores all things water with an emphasis on California water issues, but also covers broader areas related to the subject. The first of the two guests is Dr. Malika Noko. Malika is an assistant professor in cooperative extension, specializing in soil plant water relations and irrigation management, and is the director of the Conservation Irrigation Lab at University of California, Davis. We also have Dr. Samuel Sandoval. Samuel is an associate professor in cooperative extension and water resources management at the University of California, Davis. He has developed effective communication programs in English and Spanish for topics related to water and created virtual forums that foster communities of scientists for exchanging ideas, collaborative projects, fact-checking, and mythbusters. We cover so much in this conversation, and I know you'll love all of it. Let's go meet our two guests. Can, can we start by discussing in this conversation kind of the, you know, the circumstances that led to starting Water Talk? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So I would say that the pandemic was, was kind of a critical circumstance, I think. Like for me, I had just started a statewide extension faculty position at the University of California, Davis. And Sam, who is on my mentorship team, one of the things that's recommended when you start a statewide extension position in something like water and agriculture is to travel around the state and meet people. And I started my job in the fall of 2019. So I had planned to travel and all of this stuff. And you know, when the pandemic hit, I couldn't do that. So I was just thinking about ways to travel without traveling and, and meet people. And I just noticed that there also was like an open, an open area within the UC system to kind of have like different types of voices and, diff- and highlight different types of expertise related to water. As someone who is just coming onto the scene in California, Uh, it seemed like a lot of the same voices were being heard over and over again. And the same types of people were being highlighted for their expertise. And I just noticed that there was a diversity of expertise that could use highlighting. And those are also some of the people I wanted to meet and get to know. So there was this like very selfish reason behind it. And it just seemed like a fun thing to do (laughs) too. I don't and yeah, Sam. I don't know if you want to comment. And and for me, it was the the need to create community. When the pandemic uh, hit, it, everyone went to their own corners, and um, I really want to bring the community, the water community, first internally within the University of California, and then also, I mean, with the uh, community, the entire, the larger uh, Californian society. So that was the first one. The second one is uh, very important. What what Malika mentioned. Um, I, I thought it was even kind of a tour and the same narrative of the same people going to the these different events, talking about the same and just reiterating. And there was more beyond just the improving efficiencies or water markets. Uh, it, there is water is more in California than certain topics. And also it, it was the time to provide the microphone to people that were on the ground. 
And throughout our uh, podcast, we have found that the experts and the expertise uh, sometimes stays in different places, in different locations that might be different from the, from the narratives that we were listening. So that was that, in my case, stepping out a little bit of my comfort zone. I'm putting a microphone in front of myself and others. Uh, I'm a huge admirer of Malika's and Faith's uh, work. So that was, that was also a good way to um, work with colleagues that, that you like to work with and that you admire. Can you share your particular academic backgrounds and what you bring to hosting the show? So we, because we all have different lenses and how we approach things. I'm a librarian, so I tend to talk about books in my podcasts and historiography quite a bit because that's kind of my bailiwick, bailiwick or whatever. So how do you guys, where, where's your academic background? How does that color how you produce the show? Yeah, that's a great question. I have kind of a wild background, like with a lot of twists and turns in that I you know, my bachelor's degree was in cultural studies and comparative literature and philosophy. And that was just like someone who liked to read a lot and, and didn't quite know what to do with that is what led me down that path. And then I was in sales for like five years after my bachelor's degree. I was in pharmaceutical sales. So I've always been really comfortable just talking to people. And that I think also helped with with podcasting. And then while I was doing that, I got really interested in sustainable agriculture and soil, and I became a master gardener, and that took me back to school. And my and, and I got a master's in soil science. And when I did my master's, it took me to thinking about stormwater and drainage. That was what my master's thesis was about, was looking at how different types of vegetation when they're planted in um, these little stormwater infrastructures called rain gardens, uh, how they function hydrologically by changing the water budget. And then I fell in, the fell in love with the water budget. And so for my PhD, I got really into irrigated agriculture and just thinking about, you know, every aspect about it, how, how to do a better job with it, how to be better, you know, advise better irrigators how irrigation impacts the climate and vice versa, and how we can think of irrigation as a, as a land use change and its impacts on both ground and surface waters. So that was my path. And in, in my case, well, I'm born and raised in Mexico City. I literally grew on top of pavement and playing soccer on the streets. So that was fun. Um, did all my, most of my academic background in Mexico. A civil engineer, recover, but it's still a civil engineer. And sometimes it comes through because I really want to fix the stuff. Uh, then uh, did also there my master's degree, moved to uh, University of Texas at Austin, uh, civil and environmental engineering. But I think <clears throat> something that really changed what I was doing is uh, finding that water can help. It's not only something technical, but also it has a societal benefit. And that one, that was the part that caught my attention. It also it comes with the politics. So that's kind of another aspect there. And as I was doing all of this, I did a lot of work on the Rio Grande, now in the Colorado, Tijuana, and then I started working, having this experience between what is happening in Mexico and what are the things that people manage water in Mexico and vice versa in the U.S. and so on. So always having those dual lenses. Then uh, in California, I mean, I start working. I'm an environmental flow guy. And, you know, if I wanted or not, I really like the environment. 
a, a reservoirs reoperations. I also like reservoirs, so that kind of come as a conflict there. Irrigation districts. I work quite a lot with irrigation districts. Did a lot of work on manage aquifer recharge. At that point, it was called groundwater banking. Um, and later in, in California, I started working with uh, farm workers, uh, farm managers, and farmers. And that one allowed me to move from what a businessman wants for their farm, what a person who deals with the workers and the businessman operates and how they, they try to put those together and what the workers do. And I don't know, I, I, learned, I have learned quite a lot from, from all of those experiences. So my next question is kind of uh, related to public-facing academic work. Um, so I'm curious, two things. Uh, one, how your colleagues see the work you're doing with the podcast. Um, some academics can be more insular. Uh, some want to put themselves out there in every possible context and situation. And so I'm curious your colleagues' perception of the work you're doing with the podcast. And then secondarily, what the state of kind of interdisciplinary work looks like in the field of water. Sam, why don't you take it? So with our colleagues, I mean, I've, I've seen good feedback. I think they kind of see us as um, brave enough to put a microphone in front of us and be able to talk to, to, a, lot of these, to a lot of these issues. Um, it also comes with the problem of, hey, would you mind inviting me to your podcast? Which also we have had a fair share of those. But the point is, in our case, we, we, we always try to focus on um, our vision ahead, which is what are the key topics, the relevant topics, and the people that have, that have first-hand experiences on this that can help us out. Something that I, I think my best, the best way that I have updated myself in water in California is through interviewing and listening our podcast. It is amazing how these have kept me up to date on the issues that, that are that are. In. And what was the second question? Uh, the second question is the state of interdisciplinary science. Um, how how what where is it at with water in California? Are you able to cross a lot of disciplines and work with people in different contexts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. I am an interdisciplinary scientist, I would say. I mean, my master's was in soil, but my PhD, I, I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the program is through the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and it's called Environment and Resources, and it was an interdisciplinary PhD program. That's why I think I had, I knew just enough to be dangerous to try the podcast, it was <laughs> I took a, a, a social science course during my PhD, and it was about ecological science fiction and we you know worked and we created some audio pieces and we we did some editing and it was really cool and that's why I kind of knew how to edit a little bit as I said just enough to be dangerous with a podcast so definitely for me I I you know work my position is soil plant water relations and I do kind of think of all of those things all of my projects are very interdisciplinary. Like I, I try to collaborate with, you know, engineers and hydrologists like Sam. I try to collaborate with, you know, soil ecologists. I am working with people who really can think about ecosystems and, and aspects of them that all go together. And I'll give a specific example. Uh, a lot of the work that's done on irrigation is done by engineers. And here in the state of California, we've kind of been moving in this water efficiency direction and then also moving in this soil health direction. And we really need to think about those things together. 
So a lot of the projects that I have in my lab are looking at if efficiencies and changes to irrigation to save water, but also how those changes impact things that we care about, like soil carbon pools and sequestration and soil health and soil functionality. And, you know, those things really should go together. So I feel, I feel good about interdisciplinary science. Yeah, I love the state of that. And I love that uh, we're kind of moving back to the Alexander von Humboldt universe where we see everything is interconnected and we can kind of see the patterns and the connections there. And I think it, you know, people being sequestered in their disciplines makes sense for a time because you want to be an expert where you know, but eventually we all need to work together in order to move forward. So I completely agree with you. We're going to jump into a bunch of questions now, kind of around topography, climate, infrastructure. We'll start with kind of a, a simple one. Do you think it's helpful to talk about California water issues or should we talk about microclimates and regional issues? Because in some ways talking about California is kind of like talking about you know, a varied, large landscape that has many different microclimates. Is it even helpful to talk about California water issues beyond just legislation that affects everybody? You know, very good question. Uh, I mean, we, we are always uh, flipping a coin when every October 1st. So every October 1st, when the water year starts, we just go there, flip a coin, and then we'll see what, what is coming. I, I do think that it's, it's important to keep it in the bigger perspective because we really forget about things that, that, that happen. So let me be painfully clear. Last 12 years, eight years have been, we have had rain below, below average. So what that means is that now flipping a coin is actually not flipping a coin because two thirds of the time will fall on one side and one third will fall on the other. And we also unfortunately have of, of the years that have been wet, we have different wet years. We have, well, wet, but with rain and warm, we have had wet with snow and cold and wet with snow and warm. So what I'm trying to tell you is that the Sierra, the Sierra Nevada, I make the joke that the Sierra Nevada is no, no longer that Nevada at all, that it is sometimes Nevada, sometimes not. So for me, that's, that's the good part to remind everyone. This year, right, El Nino and then we had a previous year with a lot of precipitation and that's, that's what you're also talking about, the climate sometimes is not helpful. And this year we are like, okay, don't worry, we had a huge water year and now a linear year. We're going to have good amount of water. <clears throat> it hasn't rained. It, it hasn't rained and we, I'm really crossing my fingers, before Thanksgiving we have a good storm. Otherwise, we're heading to the place that we know now two thirds of the time, which is dry years. We have reservoirs full and so on that, that will damper, but, but I do think that at least on my side, everyone should know what is an, an atmospheric river, uh, where do we follow our snow, the snow line, how climate is changing all of our, our water conditions and so on. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of a both and thing. Like localism makes sense because that's where our information comes from. But then if you only know that, then you get those people that say, well, it's rained where I live like 10 times this year. We don't have water issues. And it's like, I'm, uh, for example, I'm going to Yosemite this weekend uh, for kind of an annual winter trip. I'm into cold plunges, so I'm going to go swimming safely. But in any case, it's snowing currently in Yosemite right now. And then I could, you know, deduce from that, oh, things are fine with water, but that's just a small picture. So I agree with you. If, if you could have listeners 
understand one thing better about the climate in California that would help them make better sense of water and the state of water, what would that one thing be? What do you think people misunderstand most about climate and water in California? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it would be understanding time. So understanding annual cycles versus decadal cycles versus, you know, centuries of time. So like, for example, it, I think most people who study water got driven, uh, you know, a little while when people said the drought is, you know, drought is over, our water problems are over when we had that all of the flooding and the the extreme precipitation last year. So I I think it's, it's really critical for people to understand the timescale at which, for example, groundwater is operating. Like we, we have to think decadally when it comes to something like groundwater. That would be my big my one thing. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to jump on piggyback on that because that was my next question. Do Is it just time to kind of kill the word drought and come up with more specific terms to describe things? Because drought is used kind of like the word, I don't know, God or something. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Do we need something that's like more specific that describes kind of variations on a theme, if you will? Yes, I think so. And, and so droughts, drought preparedness rather than drought response. I think that that will be one thing. The other one is that, so the droughts only highlight the problems that we already have. And when the drought is gone, it's just taking an aspirin and now you're not feeling the headache, but it will come back the migraines, like rest assured. I think it will be a permanent state of water conservation. The, the long story short, in many places in California were using more water than what we have. And again, we did some magic. So basically take water from the ground and pretty much inflating what, what we're using. I think the drought, I think is a permanent water conservation state that hopefully will leave us to a place where we can manage better, not so rainy and very rainy years. I, I want to jump into ag now because I'm located in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley, where a lot of the water issues in ag are most present. Can you complicate people's picture of agriculture and water for a second? I think that there tends to be monolithic pictures, right? People in the Central Valley have a defensive posture. If you drive the 99, you'll see what that looks like in terms of signs. I lived in Southern California in the Bay Area. They have very particular points of view on how much water it takes to produce an almond. And the kind of uh, polarized understanding of ag and water has both led to both misunderstandings and also the inability to have conversations about progress. So can you talk a little bit and complicate the picture for us? Ooh, this is a good one. I, I mean, I think for me to do my job, right, I I work on agricultural water management and I am... I did come to it from a place of conservation and interest and I'm in extension. So I work with farmers. So I have to be able to have this like very pluralistic way of being and thinking about it. And I, I guess the, I think that for me, I approach it by just kind of assuming that people are fundamentally good and trying to do the best that they can and that incremental change is positive. And that's kind of how I am approaching my work. Like I have my own, you know, personal opinions sometimes and visions for what I want things to look like, but I also can't, I mean, I don't know 
how to, to solve the problem of agricultural water use and depletion in the Central Valley. Like I, I, I don't have like a clear cut solu one solution. And I think Sam and I have talked about this. There's not a single solution. And just from a produ productivity standpoint, the entire you know country and world in some ways relies on California agriculture and the, the production as it currently is in the Central Valley. And if it were to change, then it would go somewhere else. So like we, you know, for what we consume and what we eat and what we want, it has to grow somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, I like, that, I like my baklava. Yeah. I like my baklava and I want those pistachios. <laughs> so it makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, one particular issue that I feel like people maybe don't understand completely is uh, groundwater and aquifers. Uh, can you kind of clarify what those terms mean? We, we Similar to drought in that we use them liberally without maybe understanding uh, the actual scientific basis for them. Yeah, Jordan, let me let me actually go back to the... Okay, sorry, I, I just jumped. I'm That's like okay. a train. I just am okay. moving, moving. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. So uh, let me confuse by, by pointing out a uh, number. So in California, we said like we are the breadbasket of the United States. So between nut trees, which is walnuts, salmon, and pistachios, alfalfa, hay, and corn. So uh, feedstock, uh, grapes, rice and tomatoes. So nut trees, grapes, alfalfa, rice, and tomatoes is 66%, two thirds of the acreage in California. So let me be very, very clear. When we're talking about the bread basket, it's only planted in one third, it's not in the, in the entire state. So if, if, if people ask like, we don't have the land, no, yes, we have it. And oh, we are, we're running out of land. No, 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 yes, we have it. We, but we are deciding to grow crops that agriculture is an economic enterprise. Yes, they are growing food. I get it. And I really love the food. But it is an economic enterprise. Just, just be aware that behind it, there is economic profit. I do want to, to distinguish between the non-responsible, non-socially or non-environmentally responsible agriculture the one that is large scale, the one that pollutes our aquifers, the one that pay bats our farm workers, the one that use pesticides, fertilizers, uh, the one that pollutes the air. That one, I am personally, I'm, I'm not uh, in favor of. The one that works with the community, that pays good salaries, that try to do sustainable agricultural practices. And if there is a farmer that is listening to me, listening, I'm, I'm with you anytime, and, and I can help you defend anytime. The ones that are not being socially, environmentally responsible, I'm sorry, I, and, and, and I also don't have a, the appetite to work, to work on it. So those are two things. The third one to confuse uh, our listeners is farmers, uh, farm managers, and farm workers. The owner of the, of the land the person that is providing resources that can be synthetic fertilizer, nitrogen, other, uh, other uh, supplies, and then the farm workers. And, and I think people get confused between a farm worker and a farmer. They are different and so on. So that, that's to avoid the confusion. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess one last thing on this, sorry. I just wanted to say kind of building on what Sam was saying, 
that I just want people to try, right? Like, so I understand that people are oftentimes in situations where, you know, you're, you're applying, you're, you're managing your fertilizer in a certain way, or you're managing it, you know, your soils in a certain way. But if you're curious and you want to try to incorporate sustainable soil and water conservation practices, then that that's enough, you know, just it, it, understanding that the change can be incremental. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I that think, enough about this. I, I think philosophically, I think we need to really absorb particularly the work of Will McCaskill, who just published a book called What We Owe the Future and thinking about future generations and that the environment that they will grow up in. I think that should at least play, you know, 25% role for 35% role in our decision-making. You know, I mean, we have to do what's best right now, of course, that should be more than half, but there should be an element that thinking about the future that guides our decision-making at, at the margins at least. But I know that's challenging, you know, private enterprise and working with people, you know, that are, have bottom lines. Let's jump back to the groundwater and aquifers question though. What uh, Can you explain those terms so maybe people could have a better understanding when they're used casually in, you know, journalism about the state of water? So th those two are extremely simple. So groundwater is water in the ground. Just, it is that simple. And the aquifer is the container. So it is the bucket. And in that case, the bucket is filled sometimes with sediment, so with sand, gravel, clay. And in between those is the water. So groundwater, water in the ground, aquifer, the container. Okay. The next one, and I'm just kind of defining terms here because I think it's helpful for me and helpful for listeners. What do you think people most misunderstand about snowpack? Ooh, that's very interesting. I think, Sam, you should take this if you know. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. If you have something passionate. <laughs> no, per perhaps more than misunderstand. Well, okay. So it really, uh, it depends. The snowpack depends on uh, two things that actually falls as snow. And we have seen some years that it's not falling as snow. Uh, the other one that uh, we have a uh, cold condition. And we have also seen those that even though we have good precipitation, it doesn't mean that we're going to have a good snowpack. And even though we have a good snowpack, if it is warm, we're going to lose it faster than what we think. Um, those two. Okay. That's great. That was more eloquent than I, I was thinking about it. I was like, it's that things that are rain or atmospheric rivers aren't always snow, but you said it way better. <laughs> okay. One more kind of environmental question before we talk about infrastructure. Can you explain why the soil where I live in the Central Valley has so much arsenic, mercury, and toxins in it? No, <laughs> I can't explain that unless you can, Sam, quickly. No, 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 no. I know that they are in some parts are a natural condition. So we have the minerals underneath that they have produced a naturally arsenic and some of those. We used to have all the way back the Corcoran Lake. So basically the entire Central Valley was a lake and it came with some uh, salt or water from the ocean. So that's why we have the west side more saline than the east side because they, on the west side they were more depositions of salt. But why we have uh, arsenic on, on the ground, I do not know. What I do know is that um, I think it, it is not cool to use that water for supplying people. And unfortunately, it, it is already happening. In I know that in the Central Valley it has happening. 
where I've seen it firsthand is in the Coachella Valley. And it really, one of the, there have been two or three times where I have actually have this uh, loss of faith or loss of enthusiasm about what things are going on. One was when I was in Coachella Valley, seeing a well that was pumping water with arsenic, that some people were, were drinking that water, even though it was treated. That part, it really broke my heart. And, and perhaps related with that is not cool to do that. Yeah. It's something I think about being where I am quite a bit is water issues and pollution. And a lot of yeah. these communities, particularly track homes that are put in and then are supported by, you know, various wells and <laughs> we get our water tested regularly and I'm regularly terrified. So let's jump into- Yeah. I mean, I balked right away because I was like, soil mineralogy. Oh boy. Maybe, maybe an interesting, I think, episode for you to do if you haven't done it would be the history of soil in California. You could ask Toby Ogene to come on and tell you about all the, like, the reason why the soil is everywhere it is. That is, I think some people love that, that topic in soil science. But for me, I thought it was really interesting, but that's why I was like, oh God, I'm not touching it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that would be a three hour episode for me. I, I want to talk now, now about... <laughs> infrastructure. And, and we can kind of just summarize at a broad scale here. How have dams and irrigation changed the landscape of California? I think for me, oh yeah, I, I was just going to say like, I, I'm i from the Midwest, right? So I came to California as an outsider. And what I realized about water and how it's used in this state is this state has plumbing at a, a complex level that, you know, doesn't, didn't exist in where I was from, which is Wisconsin. And I grew up in Minnesota. So I, I think that to a use or to a listener who's not very familiar with water, like I just think of it as plumbing, like our whole, the whole state of California is completely plumbed with storage and pipes and everything, just moving stuff around to where it's needed. That's how I think about it. And um, when you say how it has changed, so we used to be at least a third to 40% of wetland. And since the late, uh, the 1890s, uh, 1910s, we have a reclamation districts. So they were reclaiming the land, basically levying or building a lot of levees and drying the land so it can be farmed. Um, now you have arable land and you have some containment of the river, but you need more water, right? And in that case, well, let's build big pockets. And um, we just build them around the Sierra Nevada. And those are, co are called the uh, dam uh, rims, the rim dams. So basically dams that are along the rim at the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. Um, the third one is that what Malik is mentioning, which is now we need water, not only in all those places, but also along the coast and Southern California. So we need to build the pipes and move water down there. I do also think that agriculture in 1920s, 1910s with the diesel pump, it really starts taking water from the ground at an impressive scale. And with that, it came land subsidence and a, a very evil cycle of, well, you know, if you can bring me water, I will stop doing this. And then you bring the water. Well, you know, actually, that was a first good attempt. Let's, let's try it again, right? And, and, and we did it two or three times with the Central Valley Project, the State Water Project, until Sigma is putting a, 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 some breaks on that one. 
it's been a hundred years of a groundwater overdraft. So I think that one at a bigger scale, I think different regions have different stories. Yeah. Another big infrastructure project that's had a lot of controversy is the LA Aqueduct. There's been great scholarly research. There's been great kind of popular nonfiction. There was even a great movie with Jack Nicholson all about this particular issue and project. What would you say the legacy of the LA Aqueduct is and what what lessons does it have to teach us about things like water issues in Syria that are causing instability? And should we care about the Owens, Owens Valley? I do. I mean, I, I, was, I was there early on the year. I was actually at Owens Lake. So we still have native tribes there that they were moved outside, that they are coming back. So, so what is the legacy that People were displaced and they and they came back. We should support them. Um, what other legacy that is that is distinctive? And they mentioned like, well, at least uh, it was bought by LA, so we still have native vegetation. It hasn't been the land use hasn't changed to an agricultural farming. So we still have good places where we can protect the environment, pro- protect the native land use. The the legacy is that. Of all the piping, we have disconnected the people from their water source. We have people in LA that receive water all the way from Wyoming, from Colorado, New Mexico, from Indio, Mono County, from Lassen, Modoc, uh, Sierra counties, Trinity County. So we, we just disconnected. And I think the legacy is that we, we are now trying, as, as we are doing it with our ancestry, tracing our ancestry route now, we need to do the same with water in California. Trace our water sources. Uh, I don't know. I, I think uh, this, this always kind of reminds me that not only knowing where the water is coming from, but also how can we help? How can we uh, sustain the communities, support the communities that live there that help us with, with our water? In the Sierras, uh, fire management, uh, good land use, uh, foresting, and partnering them. So anyway. Okay. On that note, there's been a lot of movement to remove some dams from California. And I think undergirding that there's this kind of somewhat kind of a romanticism about like, can we go back? Can we go back to that verdant landscape that Los Angeles was? Can we go back? I mean, we have a Tulare Lake right now. I don't know if you guys have driven past it, but I have, and I've seen it and I've got friends with drones that have uh, flown their drones over the top of it. So I've been able to see it. But in some sense, we just can't go back is kind of my inclination. But I also think that there could be things positive that come from removing some of the dams. Where do you both stand on this issue of dam removal? I guess on the issue of can we go back, it's I think of there's a really interesting idea of how water moves actually in soil. And it's called hysteresis. And it's that water... If you know, you look at the path by which water wets and dries, it's always two different paths. And that's kind of how I feel about about the you know future of water as I do in, in California and how we need to think about development is is in a forward-looking way that takes lessons from the past, integrates it into the future. But I mean, some of the things that we haven't really talked much about, that I'd like to see, and I think are critical on agricultural land, landscapes, especially, would integrate some of the ideas of the past, you know, like grazing within perennial landscapes, but then also like sci-fi ideas, 
like agrivoltaic systems, you know? So I, I think that the future has, is going to be something that's different, but maybe learns the lessons of the past. And in my case, related with uh, removing some of the dams. So I think, again, the, it is the nuances is in the details. So we're removing dams in the Trinity River, Iron Gate, and that is a small dam, and it was just to, to divert, uh, do some hydropower. That specific dam, it was, is what is called a cash dam. What does that mean? That the, the irrigation district on top and what they were planting, which is alfalfa, when the Bureau of Reclamation did all that analysis, it didn't came as, as net benefit positive. So all the money that we were putting in there, it wasn't enough to make sure that it will, it will be economically feasible. So we needed to bring more money. How can we bring more money? Let's create a hydropower and generate that so we can subsidize farmers there. That one has a, a will be removed and we have plenty of cash dams. All the Sierra Nevada, and if you go to the San Joaquin River, you're gonna find a lot of cash dams. In that, in that specific case, water will be, it will allow for connect the migration of the salmon all the way to places where it has a good habitat. Why this is important? Because uh, you, Jordan, Malika, myself, and everyone who pays taxes in California, we're paying for fisheries. Yes, part of our taxes goes to pay for fisheries that produce fish, that put it in there, and all the equipment there, that it is very costly. And in that case, we're trying to save some. I don't think all the that will come down. And for instance, I don't see a San Luis Reservoir or Fry and Dam coming down. Why not? Because it has a specific purposes. I Something that it is very important. I really don't want anyone in the state and actually in any part of the world that do not have access to water. And I think to me that is extremely, extremely clear. And in that case, dams are very helpful. Hechechi, we have, a, well, you mentioned Owens Valley. We have a, the Colorado Aqueduct and Feather, Oroville, and so on. So I don't think all of them, I think, but, but we should be, we should recognize their, their purposes. Okay. Let's jump into a few historical questions before we close with books. So first in use, first in write. You know, this kind of goes back to the beginning of the state. And there was two major movements. There was the movement to divert water. That was for the gold rush. So they can use hydraulic drilling, mining, I should say. And then there was also the use of, if you own land near a river, you need water to access for your agriculture. And those two competing interests converged. Now, the one that kind of won out there was uh, agriculture, in part because of the economy of the state. Um, how do you think about how those particular interests have affected water use going forward in the state? So, uh, I mean, just a quick note. So for the listeners, we have an episode 41, Dam History, that actually talks about dams. So uh, make sure that we have, that you read, uh, listen to that one with, with Barsha. The specific, so first in time, first in right. Uh, so, so the first thing is that it allowed for a uh, colonizers to have the first dips on whatever we have right now, the, the current water rights system. And that one created a disproportion of who comes first related to, to who has migrated. Everyone in California is a migrant. Just, I mean, with the 1% that it is, it is not there, that are Native Americans, all of us migrated there. That created a, a disproportion advantage with who has water and who has not. 
The one other thing is that this, because uh, land was not allowed for the native tribes, the native community members, they didn't water. Uh, nor to land, nor to water. So I think that created a, a, a problem there. And currently I think what we're seeing is that whoever has the oldest water rights will get as much water as, as we have. We have seen the drought. We've seen that, I, I will not say not necessarily the more efficient use, but there is a way that you might be cut off without other ones not being cut off. And personally, I prefer to spread the load among everyone that just having very few, having the burden, and some of them having not the burden. What the hell is a water bank? Oh, what an interesting question. I mean, I think of it physically, like I, I think at one one way of thinking about it is is an aquifer, <laughs> you know, or, or like when we think about groundwater recharge and groundwater banking, as Sam was saying, like we think about finding appropriate aquifers to store water for the future. And I think we think about the physical characteristics of what would make an aquifer a good water bank. And it's, you know, connectivity. So like, does it have a bunch of like limiting layers here and there that are going to make it tricky to recharge it and store water? And, you know, is it is it aptly situated where we can store water and then move it around in it? So I, when you say like, you know, when you bring up water bank, I think of it very physically right away. I mean, any, any water storage, and it can go from aquifers Reservoirs is another water bank. We know how much water comes in, how much water went diverted. The uh, water barrel, uh, rainwater harvesting, that would be exactly the same. We're having our small piggy bank. That we're <laughs> yeah, the little water bank. <laughs> yeah, well, what, yep. what is uh, kind of a corollary to that? What is paper water? Oh, boy. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> do you want to take this? I'm not so, touching uh, it. No, so basically... Um, so you have a water right or a metric amount in a paper that is called the warranty, the water warranty. But that means it doesn't mean that you're going to get it every year. Basically, it's an amount of water that you have on your water right, but you do not know if you're going to get it or not. Yeah, I mean, I think a way to like that was a confusing concept to understand for sure, because I was trying to I, you know, have some I, I have some projects where I work with processing tomato growers who are in the Westlands aquifer region. And they they have you know water allocations. And for the first couple of years that I was here, they were getting zero percent water or five percent water. And then when we had that very very wet year, they got thirty five percent of their allocation. You know, so I, I think it's just hard and interesting to think about like, well, what is what would a hundred percent allocation look like for them? You know, with their their paper water and. Have they ever gotten it? It seems like maybe not. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and I mean, actually, that is the, and in that one. I, I mean, I, I don't blame them. The, the state uh, made very high estimates of how much water the state will be able to provide. And the reality is that water never came through through the pipe. So typically what I think is kind of 50% will be 100% or their maximum allocation. In that case, 35 will be like 70%. And yeah, I don't know. The, the state in that one, I think, oversold what, what that project was looking like. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the water pollution acts. There's the Dickey Water Pollution Act. There's the Porter Cologne Act. Do you think California water has been made safe? If not, why? And then I want to ask you both, 
do you filter your water and how at home? I mean, I think California water has been made safe for some people. I, I think that's the biggest the biggest issue, right? Is like I, I think that, that there is, you know, we have this public right to water. There's a right to to clean, safe water. And I think it's amazing that that right to water exists. There's a human right to water in the state, but it's not actualized for many, many people who live in the Central Valley, for example, who are not afforded safe, healthy drinking water. I have like one of those fridges that has a filter in it. So my water does get filtered because I like cold water <laughs> from my fridge. So that's that's why I would say, I don't know what if I'd filter it if I didn't have the fridge filter. Hmm. But it is just a, like a very basic, I'm not doing, you know, it's not like a super complex system. <laughs> and um, so the regulations allowed for uh, protecting the water, however, when it was not protected, it took some time to actually get at the root of the cause of the contamination. And it, will, it, it went there. So we have the Porter Cologne Act, and, and then out of that, some of the ordinances for um, discharge of dairy and act, and for and the application of fertilizer. So what I'm trying to tell you is that our water is safe, but once it has passed the limit, then it is not preventive. It's just like, okay, now just pass. So now we have to figure out where it is coming and if it is spread out. I don't know. I think that's, that's part of, of the deal. And not necessarily that is good. For my case, I do have a five filter system under the sink. I really have a, that. And this is very uh, sad. So Davis is surrounded by Agland. And I don't know, at that point, we were about to pass some of the limits, decided to, to go for it. The caveat with that is that even though you have a five filter system, you have to change the filters. So if anyone who is listening to us has a, a, a filter system under the sink, make sure that you change the, the filters. I do it typically on Thanksgiving. So days coming up on Thanksgiving, my wife always tells me like, hey, come on. Some yeah, I have I have reverse osmosis under my sink as well. So I think we need to get Malika on on team filtration. So we'll we'll work on that. All right. Two topics before we close. One, I want to give each of you a chance to share a particular episode with Water Talk. And I want you to pick an episode that caused you to change your mind most. Oh boy, that's super interesting. Sam, do you have one that comes to mind right away? Change my mind. I do. I do. And actually, so I have way too many favorites, but let me see if I find this one. I guess another way of asking is which episode caused you to learn the most uh, from your guests? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have one that comes to mind. I would say episode 38, which is Ag in the Delta, because as a relative newcomer to California, I my whole vision of the Delta was as a place of conflict. And I was thinking about it just as this place where there's a lot of water conflict, there's conflict over resources, it's kind of sitting in this junction uh, between, you know, the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley, like thinking about just how water is moving. I just had that vision of it as a conflict place. And that episode made me made me want to go there. Uh, and, and it made me kind of appreciate 
all all of the diversity that's there all like just want to visit it as an exciting and beautiful place so I mean very shortly after we did that episode I went to the delta (laughs) because I wanted to see it because it is just so interesting and unlike any place in California so I I really it, it changed my perspective because I hadn't thought of it as the potential for being like a beautiful and exciting place with all the birds and everything. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I lived in Stockton for one year while my partner did uh, postgraduate work at UOP. And I enjoyed just like seeing this landscape that I just didn't realize existed, you know, and watching these massive barges just float by Stockton and just being blown away that this was California. So it was, it was astounding. Or just that there are there. ports there. I, know. I was like, there are ports here? What? <laughs> going on yeah it's wild yeah very interesting what about you sam what episode jumps out to you so episode 23 and that is dancing water justice on underserved communities and this one is um, it really highlights that disadvantaged communities are underrepresented by the media so there is some coverage but not as frequent as as all underserved by the government what that means is that there is some legislations or budget that passes but not as as much as it passes for other communities and understudied by us, the academics. Uh, and that actually, it has been a um, good reflection. Uh, I always think that uh, it's super cool when an academic says that it is doing some work with an underrepresented community in some other part of the world, but we have those here in our backyard. And and that really it was um, a call for myself to switch gears on, on what I was thinking and to start working with people, um, well, to be more proactive, to work with people that are uh, underrepresented in, in our state. Yeah, we, we all love it when academics throw a rope out the side of the window and shimmy down that tower and then come out here with the rest of us and get engaged in problems <laughs> in the real world. It's, you know, obviously producing knowledge is so important, but translating that is equally as important, I think. And on that note, we're going to close with books. So I want to give you a chance to share three books you'd recommend. And I'm going to challenge Malika, since she brought it up earlier, to share at least one fiction, something something related to water or the environment. I've been rereading after her death. I've been reading a lot of Ursula Gwynn because the, the big biography of her is coming out next year. And I'm so looking forward to reading that and her works. Particularly, I just worked with some students on the lathe of heaven which is actually a, a really fun novel of that's well, a novella of hers where someone someone's dreams can change the world and a therapist tries to get involved and manipulate the dreams to create paradise and you can imagine what happens but yeah there's a lot of great work around water and environment so why don't we start with sam so we can give malika a chance to think of some fiction so let me actually start with the less colon books so there is the settler sea which is California's Alton Sea and the Consequences of Colonialism, and that is by Tracy Boyle. We interviewed her, uh, episode 48, so bringing literally how the Salton Sea is a settler sea, how it displays the communities there. Another one that is really good is uh, the book by Beth Rose Middleton Manning that is called Upstream, Trust Lands and Power on the Feather River, and again, seeing it from the uh, tribal communities. When, when I started the podcast, I was trying to get myself a good handle on, 
on how the tribes uh, are looking, what are their views, and actually those two will be good. Put note in that one. Uh, when you were mentioning about that, we have at some point in the interview, like we have current needs, but we should be also thinking or looking in long terms for all the actions that we have. Something that I learned from our indigenous communities is that they look from three to six generations ahead. So decisions that they are making, they are doing it three to six generations ahead. And that is a good mindset for us to kind of think of our decisions. Now, one that I think it is tangential of water or it has the water, but it explains the land use. And with the land use, how all the water uh, moving to that is uh, in the struggle. Scholars and the fighting against industrial agribusiness in California by Daniel O'Connell. We also interviewed him. It really shows the, he mentioned is that it, it really shows the corruption. It is, he, with his words, he mentioned that it is Cadillac Desert on steroids. And it is, if you read it, you will figure out how the government and the companies, they work together to have the landscape that we have right now, which is an, an industrial agribusiness. And also I, I, I agree with him. It is so permeated. It, is, it has changed so much our environment that we cannot untangle. We just think like, well, this is the way that it should be. But, but that one in the struggle, highly recommended. That is another book that, that really changed my mind. Yeah, so I actually, I have a few for fiction. I think with the movies coming out and to inspire maybe youth out there, if you haven't read Dune, it is a classic. And I think, I, I don't know, it, it was maybe one of the, the first most like formative science fiction books on water for me that I, I read because it's really about water, but it's also about soil and it's about ecology and it's about politics and it's about so many things. There's parts of it that definitely did not age well. So just full, full disclaimer on that. But that was, that was one kind of a classic and especially with the movies coming, I think that that's, or the new movie and then the old, you know, the movie that came out last year. And then I think one of my favorite books that is a fiction book about water for people who haven't read it is called The Water Knife. Uh, and it's by Paolo Bassi Galupi. And hopefully, sorry if you're listening, Paolo, if I got your name wrong. Um, but it is, it's, I, I like to read books that are cli-fi, so climate science, uh, climate change, you know, based science fiction. So it is, I mean, it is a book that stayed with me a lot. So there, it's not one, it, it's, it, you can picture it really happening. You, you know, there's enough of it that feels like it could be a, fu a future, a disturbing future, but a future that is, you know, you know, focused on water conflicts between states in the Southwest and in the American West. And I, I don't know, I, I really, it just really hit me. <laughs> so that one was really good. Similar type of book, also cli-fi based on water is called Gold Fame Swiss. And that book was by, or is by Claire Watkins. And again, it's a, it's a future. It is a little bit uh, apocalyptic <laughs> in California and centered around water shortages and what happens to families and what happens to people and when when water starts to run out. So 
I do like these apocalyptic books <laughs> and they're not for everyone. Like I had my husband read Water Knife and he had like nightmares. So just mm. full disclosure on that. But those are those are some. And then another classic, if you haven't read Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, also really it's it, once again, it's like more ecological, you know, picturing a future. But water, I think, is a part of it. Mm. Have you read any Kim Stanley Robinson? Uh, like Ministry of the Future. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. he's local. He's in Davis, future. right? He is. But I feel like that would be like, that's that's what I would have been expected to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I, was, I was waiting for that so, one, but it didn't come. And so yeah. it, was, it was there. All right. To close, what are you both working on in your respective domains uh, currently? And then what can we expect from the podcast going forward? Oh, wow. Current domains, like I'm doing a lot of work and I think Sam, you are too, because we, we have some projects together. I'm doing a lot of work in kind of two main strains. One area that we're doing a lot of work is on this cover crop question in the Central Valley. There's a lot of debate about are cover crops worth it? And we did do an episode called Cover Crop Hydroeconomics, thinking about this issue of, you know, there is some cover crops like any any plants do use some water, but they do provide tremendous amount of benefits. But there's some debate about you know their water cost and their water use and whether they should be used in California agriculture. So I'm I'm studying that question and I I have like a large project with that Sam's a part of where we're looking at cover crop water use and like a new designer cover crop. <laughs> so that's one thing. Another thing that I'm focusing a lot on is just the future of precision irrigation and irrigation management. Like we have a drones program in our lab and we do high resolution mapping of evapotranspiration, which is crop water use and thinking about how best to use these types of tools. You know, how is the precision always worth it? Where does it make sense? How can we manage water as cleverly as, as possible? And in my case, I have a different projects, the same as Malik. The one is, well, related with irrigation, that project, and also training uh, irrigation applicators, trying to develop uh, courses for, uh, in this case, irrigators, farm workers that uh, are irrigators, and how they can improve uh, their water application, save water, uh, and also reduce the a use of synthetic fertilizer, human rights to sanitation. We're working to uh, with the state uh, to assess what is the state of the sanitation, and then see if we can uh, have a human right to sanitation similarly as we have the human right to water. Um, we have the working along the border, uh, still projects with the Rio Grande, Colorado, bringing the scientists together, uh, training uh, local elected officials. So I've been working quite a lot to develop materials to train county board of supervisors, uh, council board members, uh, uh, school district uh, members to actually train them better on, on, on actually not train them better, to allow to, so they learn how to learn. Uh, we are actually providing that much of a context, but they are, we're providing the tools so they learn how to learn. And the thing that they are learning how to learn is on water issues, but they can do it in, in other specific topics. That is the great part that we are training them at this, at the beginning with water, they can learn to le learn how to learn in other topics so they can do better decisions. And, and I think that's it. Okay. And what do we expect from the podcast going forward? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that we are, we have a lot of ideas, so we don't want to give too much away, but I think we're kind of, I, I would say that we may actually expand the scope of it a little bit because, you know, Faith, for example, has, has taken a role in science communication in Arizona. So we're starting to kind of broaden and think, think about, you know, like what we said earlier, kind of trying to think about larger issues that affect more of a geography, but then still have that local perspective as best as we can by telling stories. Yeah, I think that's all I feel I want to give away right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, Go ahead. And, and, you, no, and you know, I think it, this is um, great because we get sometimes really California-centric. Uh, California has a lot of uh, gravity, and I think that's fine. But sometimes uh, looking things from different angles or in other places, can help us out to put what we have in perspective. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. I, I was, uh, the example that I always made, the CIMIS stations. So the, the stations that we have on evapotranspiration, we have, I don't know, more than 100, 120. And so there are states that only have like, what, three, four, seven. So when, when we think about it, it, it is sometimes mind blowing uh, and having those different perspective, I think, will help us out to value what we have or to learn listening from from other places. Yeah, and I don't say this to everybody, but I'm definitely saying it to you too. I love your podcast so much; it's one of my favorites regionally that I listen to, and I think it's really important. And I I was having a conversation with someone about this recently. I think one of the best things that you can do in terms of your knowledge development is understand your utilities. We just had Catherine Blunt on the show who wrote a wonderful book called California Burning about PG&E, both its bankruptcies and also the fires that resulted from it, specifically Paradise. And I think like understanding the grid is a great way to be a knowledgeable consumer in California. Understanding water is a great way to be a knowledgeable consumer because a lot of these things that maybe people consider mundane and no offense might consider boring, you know, talking about water, talking about electricity <laughs> production. Those are oftentimes what? the most important. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, it's a caricature I'm creating. Oftentimes those things impact our life more than the things that we maybe pay attention to. And so I know it's hard to supplement reading about the grid versus looking at TikTok, but I think it will benefit you more in the long run to understand just how your how your society works, how your systems work. So I really do appreciate the work that you both do as well as your other hosts. And I appreciate you talking with me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.